0: Thanks for joining us for this recording from the Southdale Church of the Nazarene in Anderson, Indiana. I'm Pastor Brad Burrow, and I'm glad you're listening. It's Advent season, and we're preparing for the coming of Jesus the Messiah with a series we're calling A Thrill of Hope. Even though at times things in our world might seem almost hopeless, Advent reminds us that God is busy making all things new. Thanks again for listening. Now here's the message. Is, don't feel bad. It's probably one of the most neglected books in the New Testament, and it's right towards the very end, right before Revelation, right after 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. There's just this one little book, one chapter book, so short they don't even divide it into multiple chapters, the book of Jude. And I'd like to read, it's short, I'd like to read that with you today. Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these He has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion and they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In that very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the angel Michael, Archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do not understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, uprooted and twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied about them, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them, all the ungodly, of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness, and of all the defiant ungodly sinners have spoken against them. All the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires, and they boast about themselves, and they flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They told you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, but do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. It's the word of God for the people of God. Would you pray with me? We have already asked, but we would ask it again, Father, that you would pour out your Spirit on your word as it is preached. Speak to your people today and give us ears to hear what you desire to say. Give us the knowledge of what we ought to do. And then, Father, give us the strength and the courage to do it. We ask this in and through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know how much time you spend engaged in social media. I don't even know if you know what social media is. You know, things like. Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I don't know if you spend any time doing those sorts. Some of you, I know, spend some time doing that because I see you go online, and I spend time doing that. So, but others, I don't know. But if you spend any time at all online or in the social media, you've probably at one point or another come across a, a phenomenon they call a what a social media challenge, you know, and a challenge. Um, over the years, there have been, and there still are, several of them going around, many of these different kinds of challenges. Someone will post a picture or a video of something, and then it seems like before long everyone else in the world is trying to do the same thing, only do it better. Uh, for example, if you're not familiar, you have no clue what I'm talking about, let me show you. Um, uh, the year 2010, the photo sharing platform Instagram launched, and people started sharing pictures they took with their cell phones. And it wasn't long before Instagram was filled with pictures of people planking. Do you know what planking is? If you don't know what the planking simply means lying flat, uh, straight as a board. But the challenge was to do it creatively, do it in extreme places. And so people would take pictures. And then not only were they planking, they were owling, perching on things, trying to look like an owl, and people were taking pictures, trying to do it more creatively, trying to do it in ways that we'd get other people's... It was a challenge. Who could find the best place to plank or the the best place to owl? Eventually, social media came to incorporate not just photos, but videos as well. First it was Vine, and then Instagram started allowing videos, and soon the challenges were becoming more elaborate, Uh, 2013 was the year of the Harlem Shake, I don't know if you know what that is either, but the Harlem Shake is a challenge named after a song by by Bauer, which used that music as the background for the video, at least the beginning of the song. The song starts with about 15 seconds of introduction, and then the bass, as they say, drops. You'll see a sample of this here. starts with somebody dancing, just one person in public, and nobody else seems to notice. But then the music changes, and everybody starts. That's the Harlem Shake. 30 seconds of of that. And pretty soon everyone was doing that. This This was filmed at Olivet, but a lot of different colleges, a lot of different teams, sports teams, a lot of different businesses were making these videos of themselves doing the Harlem Shake, trying to outdo everyone else. Uh, in 2014, they started using the challenge for something good, however. 2014 was the year of the ice bucket challenge. You remember that? When people dump buckets of ice water on their head and then challenge three of their friends to do the same thing, and if they didn't, they had 24 hours to do it, and if they didn't do it, they had to make a donation to the ALS Association. Um, and so so different people this is a school teacher I don't know who she is I just found her when I searched ice bucket challenge they dump ice over their head and pretty soon celebrities that's Bill Gates was doing it and at least one former president did it as well with the help of his wife who didn't want to get her hair wet Uh, and pretty soon people were using it to raise money for a good cause not every challenge was good and harmless however in fact, some were not only frivolous and silly like that, some posed some significant potential risk to those who participated. I Take, for example, the, the cinnamon challenge. I don't know if you've seen this before, but people challenge people to, to uh, eat a tablespoonful of powdered cinnamon in 60 seconds without taking a drink of water or spitting it back up. And most of the time, it's something like this, where people, well, she managed to do it, but most people end up spitting it out or coughing clouds of dust. But uh, dry cinnamon poses a choking hazard. And when you inhale it, it can inflame the lungs. And there are cases of people who got pneumonia because they inhaled the cinnamon during this challenge. And that's one of the less, less harmful ones. That's one of the tamer examples. There are others where people people would challenge each other, dare each other to do stupid things, even more dangerous than that. Sometimes challenges can be used for good. Sometimes challenges can encourage somebody to do something that ought to be done. But other times, challenges can pose a significant danger. And with that in mind, I'd like you to consider with me what we read from the book of Jude. Um, There's not a whole lot that we know for certain. There's not a whole lot I can tell you for certain about Jude the person, the author. There are, in the New Testament, a number of people who go by the name of Jude or Judah or Judas, all forms, different forms of the same name. There are a lot of them in the pages of Scripture, and frankly, almost any of them could have been the author of this letter, and, and it might even have been somebody otherwise. The only thing the book itself tells us about Jude is that Jude is a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. And now, as soon as he says that, we think Jesus had some brothers, didn't he? You know that, right? Jesus had some brothers. Uh, Mary, Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus of the Holy Spirit, but after the birth of Jesus, uh, she most likely had children because Jesus has brothers with Joseph. And so Jesus adopted in the family. These are Jesus' Jesus's brothers. Four of them are named in the New Testament, and one of them goes by the name of Jude or Judas, another by the name of James. Um, what's more, we're told, we're told in the book of Acts that Jesus' brothers along with Mary were there in the upper room when the church gathered together to pray after the resurrection. Apparently something about Jesus' death and resurrection had brought them to faith in Jesus. We also know from what Paul writes to the Corinthians that Jesus' brothers began traveling as itinerant missionaries and were leaders in the early church. And so there are a lot of people, traditionally, the assumption is that this letter was written by that Jude, a brother to James, who himself was a brother to Jesus. And to be honest, I would agree with that traditional assessment. I have my reasons for believing it was Jude, the brother of Jesus and if you challenge me after service, I can share those reasons with you, but if you ask me to prove it to you, I can't do that. There are clues that indicate it's probably this brother of Jesus, but there's no hard evidence to prove it. Jude, James, or in Hebrew, Jacob, were both very common names in Jesus' day, and there are a lot of first century Jude's and James to choose from. Much the same way, I can't prove to you when it was written. Different scholars have different ideas. Some would date it as early as the 50s A.D. Others would date it as late as 150 or 160 A.D., which means, depending on who you ask, it is either the the very first book in the New Testament ever written or the very last book in the New Testament ever written. It could be anywhere in there. It's hard to say. I personally tend to assume that this was written fairly late. Given some of the things that Jude says, I, I imagine this was probably written around the 90s AD. But again, if you corner me after service and say, prove it to me, I can't. I can show you why I think that, but I can't prove that to you. Nor do we know who the letter's written to. There's no specific audience, unlike a lot of the other letters that says, to the saints of God in Corinth or or the others. There is no indication here to whom this letter was written. No specific audience is mentioned. As a result, it's frequently grouped in with what's called the the Catholic epistles or the general epistles, written to the church universal. But that said, Jude seems to have a specific situation in mind. You heard him as he wrote about some very specific challenges facing the church. He seems to have someone in particular in mind, although who that is, it's impossible for us to know. I suppose this is a good opportunity for you to look at the person sitting next to you and say, the preacher sure doesn't know much, does he? (laughs) We don't. We really can't know all that much about the book of Jude. But the one thing we can know for certain is that Jude saw some challenges confronting his church. And Jude also recognized that these challenges posed a significant danger to the believers. We know that because he tells us. He describes in this little short letter in a lot of different ways how certain people have infiltrated the church and were beginning to teach lies that ran contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Among other things, Jude says that they perverted God's grace until it became a license for immorality. It's more in that very same verse. He says they rejected both the divinity and the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord they claim to be operating by some sort of inside information, special knowledge given them in a dream or a vision, a revelation direct from God himself, and they use those so-called visions, those so-called revelations as a a rationale for living lives that polluted their own bodies, even as they rejected human authority and heavenly correction. These teachers, Jude says in verse 8, flirt with things beyond their ability to comprehend. Things that nonetheless have the power to completely destroy them. And in their spiritual ignorance, they put themselves beyond instruction or correction. There's no teaching them anything. They are, Jude says, shepherds who shepherd only themselves. And in verse 16, he summarizes it all up when he accuses them of being grumblers and fault finders. They follow only their own evil desires. They boast about themselves, and they flatter others only for their own advantage. And Jude says this is no innocent, harmless challenge. This is not some bucket of ice over the head or a silly music video that never hurt anyone. The challenge these teachers pose to the church are a significant threat, Jude says. And he spares no word, he pulls no punches in exposing them for what they are. He calls them ungodly people whose condemnation has long been foretold. They have followed after the way of Cain, the Bible's first murderer. They have repeated Balaam's error, Balaam, that prophet from the Old Testament, who who for the right price, during the Exodus, for the right price, was willing to mislead the Israelites and lure them away into idolatry. It's more, he says, they are recapitulating Korah's rebellion. Korah, who along with 249 others, rejected the authority of Moses and the leadership of Aaron as high priest. We're all holy, Korah and his co conspirators said. We're all holy. We're all equal. We don't need you to tell us what to do or show us where to go. We can find our own way. Thank you very much. And Jude says these new teachers are following in that very same rebellion. These false teachers, Jude tells us, are as worthless as clouds that never bring rain. They are as twice dead as fruit trees that lack a harvest and have been uprooted and left to dry out in the sun. They're as dangerous and as wild as as waves on a wild sea in the middle of the night, foaming and frothing. And they're as unreliable. If you're trying to chart a course, they're unreliable. As unreliable as trying to chart your course by the planets, which wander through the sky, rather than by the stars, which follow a fixed course. Kind of makes you want to say, "Hey Jude, uh, tell us how you really feel about him, doesn't it?" Tell us what you really think, Jude. But Jude is forceful in his language for a reason. Jude is adamant in his argument because these teachers don't just pose a danger to themselves. He says they put the entire church at risk by their teaching and their behavior. You can see that in verse 12 if you look closely. Verse 12, the NIV tells us these people are blemishes on the love feasts as the church eats together when they gather. And that translation in the NIV is based in part on a parallel passage from the book of 2 Peter. In a lot of ways, Second Peter and the book of Jude run in parallel tracks. They they make a very similar argument, and, and in Second Peter, uh, false teachers are described as being blots and blemishes on the feasts of the church. That's the phrase that Peter uses: blots and blemishes. Spiloi kai is the is the phrase. Spiloi blemishes. And so Jude, making a similar point here, uses a a similar word, and translators again translated as blemishes. There's just one problem with that translation, and the problem is this: Jude does not use the word spiloi. He says they are spilates. And you understand instantly what that means, don't you? Spiloi and spilades are two different forms of the same root word. Uh, Spilos, spila. Uh, um, these, these are t- spilos, 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 the masculine and the feminine form of the same root word. But while spilos means a blemish or a stain, a spilos means something different. Um, eventually, spilos comes to refer to stains or blemishes as well. But in the New Testament era, when Jude is writing this letter, spilos refers to an underwater hazard. That poses a danger to ships. It's a rock, a cliff, a ledge, a reef. The kind of hidden danger that will shipwreck a ship and drown its sailors. That's why, for this particular verse, I prefer the New American Standard Bible's translation, where it says, These false teachers are hidden reefs in your love feasts. They're not just stains. They're not just blemishes. They are a hidden reef waiting to sink the ship of the church. They're not just blemishes that mar the beauty of the church's worship. These people are a lurking danger that could capsize everything. That's why Jude is so forceful. And that's why Jude says he felt compelled to write this letter. If you look at verse 3, Jude says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Jude says he had planned on writing something different. In fact, if you read closely, he was not just planning on writing something different, he was already actively working on it. The word the NIV translates as eager in that verse refers not just to desire, to a desire to do something. Even more, it speaks to the di- diligence which, with which one does it, the, the attention, the constant attention one gives to a task. So Jude wasn't just planning on writing them. He says he was already diligent in writing them. He was already making every effort to write to them about their shared salvation. Wouldn't you love to read that book? Wouldn't you love to read that book? He's writing about their shared self. He wants to write to them about Jesus. I suppose if you wrote a book about Jesus, you'd probably call it a gospel. Wouldn't it be fun to read a gospel written by Jesus' brother? And Jude says, "I, I couldn't do that. I was working on it. That was what I was trying to do. But then this challenge came up. Even as I was writing, this challenge appeared on the horizon. Not just some innocent, harmless challenge, the kind of challenge that posed a significant threat to his church. And so he set aside that work and wrote them this brief, urgent warning. He does this because he sees the danger coming. But not only does Jude describe the challenge to their faith, he answers that challenge with a challenge of his own. Remember we said at the start, sometimes challenges are dangerous, but other times challenges can... Spur somebody on to doing something good and right. Jude doesn't wring his hands in fear over this challenge. Instead, he challenges the church to be faithful. I wanted to write to inform you, he says, but I felt compelled to write and warn you. Not just to warn you, but to challenge you. To contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. In other words, Jude says, these teachers pose a challenge, a threat to the church, but we're not going to let the church go down without a fight. Instead, he challenges them to contend. Epagonizomai is the Greek word there. And maybe if you listen closely, you can hear the root word to agony there. Epagonizomai. Contend, he says, struggle even to the point of agony. Be willing to suffer for the faith that has been handed down to you. Now here, we ought to recognize that Jude is not writing directly to us. The Spirit takes Jude's words that the Spirit inspired and applies them, makes them living and active to us in our situation. But Jude had a specific situation a specific situation in his day in mind. When he put pen to parchment and started writing this letter, he had something specific he was addressing. And we live in a very different place, a very different time. But I'd like to take Jude's challenge and apply it to us, if you would let me today, and if you'd let me do that this year. I'd like to extend a a similar challenge, a, a challenge in the same direction, even if it differs somewhat in the details. Because while there was a challenge on the horizon in Jude's day that threatened the church, there are still challenges facing the church of Christ today. There are still challenges that represent hidden reefs, not just blemishes that mar the beauty of our gathering, but hidden reefs on which our ship of faith may very well run aground. And rather than wringing our hands in consternation about this, I'd like to answer the challenges with a challenge of my own, a challenge to contend for the faith that's been handed down to us. There are four things over the next year I'd like to challenge you, us, as a church, to do. So what is it? Well, that's a good question, my friend George would say. I'm glad you asked. First of all, First of all, I'd like to call the year 2019 the year of Southdale Church of the Nazarene's New Testament challenge. New Testament challenge. First of all, as Jude says in verse 20 of his letter, I'd like to challenge you to build yourselves up in the most holy faith by remembering what the apostles of our Lord Jesus taught us. You see, we still have access. We don't have a, the apostles still with us today. But we still have access to the apostles teaching in the pages of the New Testament. We have the deposit of faith that has been entrusted to the faithful. You cannot contend for the challenge in the challenge of our faith if you do not understand the content of our faith. And so the first part of my challenge to you this year is to read And if you'll participate in this challenge with me over the next year, we will together read the entire New Testament. Maybe you've never counted, but there are 260 chapters in the New Testament. Um, Maybe you've never counted, but coincidentally there are also 260 weekdays in a year. Five weekdays a week, 52 weeks a year. 260 weekdays. And so, if we read one chapter each weekday, we will, in the course of the year, read through the entire New Testament together. And I, you'll, if you look in your bulletins, I've already begun to distribute a reading plan um, so that we can read together. And because I like you so much, we've already got the first day's assignment done, haven't we? We read Jude. <laughs> read it again, it's worth rereading. Um, But it does not take long. We can do it even in the course of a service to read a chapter out of the New Testament. But don't just read it. Consider what it has to say. We're not just going to start at Matthew. In fact, you see, we're going to start with Jude. But we're not just going to start at Matthew and go straight through to Revelation. That would be like four Gospels back to back. And even I think I would get tired of that by the time we got through John. Uh, Instead, we're going to kind of move thematically through the New Testament. We'll read an entire book at a time. We're not going to jump in between in the middle of books, but after Matthew, we'll move to some others that are similar to Matthew in thought and audience. And then we'll go to Luke, and Luke should bring us right up to Easter time. In fact, our reading plan will get us reading about the crucifixion and resurrection right during Holy Week. It'll work out just perfectly for us. Then after that, we'll talk about some of the letters of Paul, and then Mark will be in there, and we'll wrap up with the writings of John, moving into Advent and reading together the book of Revelation. Uh, I'll distribute those reading plans. It'll also, in case you're not actually here in the room and don't have a bulletin in front of you, if you're listening online or listening to our podcast, those will be available on our Facebook page and our website as well. But we're going to work our way through the New Testament, and... Uh, Not only will we be reading the New Testament together, when we gather for worship, when we gather for Bible study each week, on our Sundays and our Wednesday night gatherings, our studies will be based on the material we covered throughout that previous week. So we will each individually be reading at home, and then we'll be talking about it as a church together. And together we'll contend for our faith one chapter per day. But contending for the faith is about more than just reading the Bible to build up our own faith. Contending for the faith also means sharing our faith with others. And toward the very end of Jude's brief letter, he addresses that as well. If you look down at verse 22 and 23, Jude writes, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now depending on which translation you have in front of you today, um, that verse might sound different to you. That's not because translators are lazy or sloppy about their work, it's because the original text of those verses is a little bit difficult to decipher. And over the years in the manuscripts there have been a lot of different variants Variants in those two verses. It's hard for us to know with certainty exactly what Jude wrote in those two verses. However, we can get his message, even if the exact wording is unclear. In these two verses, he's talking about bringing back those who have wandered from the faith and bringing to faith those who have never had it before. Jude's talking about witnessing, sharing the gospel with others. And in those two verses, another thing that is clear is he says our witness should be characterized by three things. First, he speaks of witnessing by showing mercy, Elsewhere, Paul will say that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Paul will talk about restoring gently those who have fallen. As we share our faith, there ought to be a mercy about it. We are sharing good news that brings life. But not only ought there to be mercy in our witness, there should be urgency as well. When we talk about sharing our faith, we're not just engaging in trivial small talk about something we've been thinking about or reading in our spare time. No, there's a real danger out there. Isn't there? There is a real danger out there. Jude says when you are sharing your faith with other people, what you are doing is you are rescuing them out of a fire And our attempts to snatch others out of the fires of hell ought to be every bit as urgent as they would be if we were trying to rescue them from a burning building. There ought to be a mercy to our witness, but there should be an urgency to it as well. Lastly, Jude says there should be an aspect of fear in our witness. And that sounds weird to say, doesn't it? But we ought to be afraid when we are sharing our faith. He's not talking about being afraid of people. He's not talking about being afraid of what others might think about us or what others might say about us or even about what others might do to us. Rather, the fear Jude is talking about is the kind of care demonstrated by doctors when they're dealing with a patient with a contagious disease. Or or the kind of care shown by a lifeguard seeking to, to rescue someone from drowning while at the same time res- recognizing that the one they are rescuing might very well pull them under with them. As we witness, Jude says, we ought to be constantly vigilant, lest as we seek to rescue others from sin, we be drawn into that same sin with them. There ought to be mercy, there ought to be urgency, there ought to be that healthy fear but save others, Jude says. And I'd like to challenge you to do that this year, to share your faith. We talk about sharing our faith every Wednesday night when we gather. If you're not a part of prayer meeting, um, after we sing together for a while, we, we share testimonies. And I always ask the question, who have you shared your faith with this week? When we talk about that on Wednesday night, sometimes when we talk about sharing our faith, we talk about getting together or running into another believer somewhere and and talking with them about how good God is and how good God has been to us, and encouraging them as they encourage us. And that's important. It's important that we ought to be encouraging each other. But when I'm talking about sharing our faith, that's not exactly what I'm speaking of here. I'm not just talking to somebody else who already believes. I'm talking about sharing your faith with those who are in danger of missing out on grace altogether. Because there are some people out there who are drifting away from faith. We're supposed to be drawing them back in. There are others out there who have never had faith to begin with. We ought to be pointing them to Jesus Christ. So I'd like to ask you to contend for your faith by sharing it with somebody at least once a week. Last Sunday we talked about how good God's been to us, didn't we? we acknowledge that when we started saying yes to Jesus Christ, when we started saying yes to God, He made all the difference in my life. And we said the promise of hope is that if you'll say yes to God, He'll do the same for you. You can do that. You can share your faith like that. You can talk about the difference God made in you, and you can extend the hope that if you'll say yes to God, He can do the same for you. Share your faith. Invite them to church. And here, I'm not talking about asking your friends who go to church somewhere else if they want to come to church with you from now on. That's not what I'm talking about. But you might have friends who've wandered away from church. You might have friends that are are beginning to doubt their faith, and those are exactly the kind of people Jude says we ought to be drawing back in with mercy, reaching out to those who doubt. There may be others that you know that have never been a part of church at all and have no idea what this whole thing is about. Share your faith by inviting them and bringing them to worship with you. But contend for the faith. One chapter per day, one witness per week. Third, Jude speaks of the fellowship in which the church shares. He talks about their love feasts and the fact that these false teachers are are hidden reefs that threaten to destroy the fellowship those feasts create. In referring to love feasts, Jude is talking about more than just the, the Eucharistic meal that the church shares in worship together. Their church feasts, their meals, their love feasts were more like church fellowships, where every week the church shared a meal together. It was radically countercultural in Jude's day one of the things that caused the church to grow. Because when the church gathered to eat together, it shattered the barriers that separated people. It brought down the the, the barriers of, of race and gender and class. When the church gathered for worship, there was a place for everyone. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. There's a place at the table for everyone. And so the wealthy and the slave alike would gather together and sit down to a meal. Some of them, it might have been the only good meal they had all week. But they were welcome at the table, right along with the richest of them. During those meals, they likely broke the bread and drank of the cup, remembering and thanking God for what he had done for them in Jesus Christ. But it was more than just a fragment of bread and a thimble of wine consumed in pews, it was an entire meal that they shared around tables together because they knew that sharing a meal at the table was important. It's there that the partnership, the fellowship, the communion was created. Now, I'd like to encourage you to make a point in sharing in the meals our church has when we gather together. In fact, in just a couple of weeks, I told you we're going to be gathering for lunch on a Sunday morning, having some soup and some sandwiches and and some birthday cake to celebrate birthdays. And it's just as easy to go home and eat by yourself, I know. Probably even better food if you do that. Maybe. But when we gather like that, it's important. It's important. That's where fellowship is formed. Just a few weeks we'll have lunch after morning worship and in just a few days. Just a few days. We'll gather for dinner on Wednesday night before our prayer meeting together. I know not everyone can participate in every meal, but we ought to make a priority out of sharing meals together. So I'd like to challenge you to contend for your faith. One chapter per day, one witness per week, and one meal, at least one meal per month. Fourth and finally, Jude also talks about prayer. This might be a good opportunity for you to turn to the person sitting next to you and say he's never going to finish is he but i will i promise look at verse 20 and 21 with me but you dear friends by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in god's love as you wait for the mercy of our lord jesus christ to bring you to eternal life He challenges them to contend for their faith by building themselves up in the most holy faith, but also by praying in the Holy Spirit. And I don't have a catchy phrase for this one, you know, one chapter per day, one witness per week, one meal per month. There's a ring to that, but we're not supposed to pray every month. We're not supposed to pray by the week. We're not even called to pray by the day. Pray without ceasing is what Paul says. This has been a live recording from our Sunday morning service. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to join us, we gather for worship every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. at 530 West 53rd Street in Anderson, Indiana. You can find out more about us online at southdalenaz.com. Again, that website is southdalenaz.com. Now go into peace and be a blessing.